Welcome back to Call and Shot. I am joined today by threatening, uh, threatening him for a couple months now uh, from Ble- Bleacher Report, my co-instructors at Sports Business Classroom. Uh, Eric Pincus uh, joins today. Eric, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. For the show, um, we've been going pretty hot. Breaking games, seeing which team has the advantage, making predictions, stuff like that. We're at the point, you know, this nice little window, almost a mini vacation for 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 some between the finals and the start of the final. For at least for for my sake, before I really throw myself into finals preview mode, is to take stock of the fallout from the playoffs. I've had Adam Mares on to talk about the Nuggets. I had Eric Name and Chris Harrington on to talk about, you know, the Bucks and Grizzlies. But the playoffs are revelatory for teams, and so it changes the thinking of front offices, both about their own and other teams. And uh, you're about as good a person as I can think of to bring on to, to talk about that. So I guess I w- um, where do you think is the best place to start? I mean, Phoenix <laughs> seems like an obvious sort of, um, given that they're probably the team that's most disappointed in their playoff showing. Yeah, yeah, they are, aren't they? Um, you know, Chris Paul turned into a pumpkin really quickly, and I think it's really easy to say, oh, he just he aged out overnight. But I think you have to look at what the opponent was doing, which was really taking away the mid-range game, which is a lot of the heart of what he does, right? Drive in and create for others. Um, I think Chris has always struggled a little bit against bigger defenders. Uh, and then, it, you know, to your point, you know, it kind of raises that question. Can you play with like a binary center in this league in DeAndre Ayton? Uh, we've seen also Rudy Gobert get knocked out uh, consecutive years or so uh, with issues uh, with how teams attack him. Not to say that he's to, to blame, uh, but there are questions about, uh, or at least teams are, Debating how much can you spend in a center if you can't play that player in key moments in the playoffs. So, in terms of of, of like what you're hearing, like I, I think that we've seen stuff come out that uh, Phoenix is questioning whether you should pay a center thirty million dollars a year. Um, what just to if you could take the temperature on where Phoenix is because that's the obviously the biggest kind of decision point of Phoenix's offseason is DeAndre. That well, I, you dropped out for a second, but the last thing I heard you say was what their decision making is on DeAndre Ayton. Yeah, and so I, I did maybe th- two years ago. Um, with a student, I, I, you know, I tutor students and, and he had a project uh, that he was assigned on the Suns and we did an evaluation and we kind of projected ahead. Okay, they keep Aiton, they keep Bridges, uh, they pay Chris Paul, uh, they've got Devin Booker. It's a team that simply doesn't pay the luxury tax historically, not to say that they won't, but they haven't. And so my conclusion was like they, at the time, they just can't keep all of these players together and stay under the tax. And so I think from a point of view, if you're going to spend that kind of money, you have, and if you're going to be a contender, you should be willing to go into the tax to an extent. It's just, you have to also make judicious decisions. You're not just going to spend into the tax because you're a contender. The question is, can they get as much out of guys like JaVale McGee, Bismack Biombo, or some replacement player for DeAndre Ayton and play smaller and maybe invest more in bigger wings or some of their deficiencies, maybe a, a, a better ball handling guard uh, behind Chris Paul, et cetera. Uh, I, I personally think Ayton is really valid and, and vital to what they do. Uh, I think the versatility that it gives them to play big and to play small when they need to play small without Ayton is, is really essential. And, and I think when you ask about a temperature there are plenty of teams that would love to have Aiden. I don't think, I don't think DeAndre's sleepless right now, wondering where he's going to get his check. You know what I mean? Like he's going to get his money somewhere. The question will be where, and and it'll probably be at or near the max. Whether it's through an offer sheet as a restricted free agent, whether it's in a sign and trade, 
or whether it's uh, the Suns flat out paying him. But the, the, the problem, of course, is that you drafted Aiton over Luka Doncic and Trey Young, and then you just let him go and basically get nothing out of him is pretty... I mean that's that's a pretty bold swing there and a miss to to make that decision. Have a player who's put up the kind of numbers that Aiton has, be a part of the team's success the way he has. And yes, they fell short this year uh, after having the best season in the league, right? Regular season. So I, I don't know the the answer, of course, for what the Suns choose. Uh, but there is value in who DeAndre Ayton is as a player. And I get because they're so close to him, they're going to know his flaws better than anyone else. So the teams that uh, are, are looking at him from the outside may be able to scout his flaws. If there are some motivation issues, which I don't know of, uh, that they perceive, um, it doesn't seem to impact his, you know, what he does on the court. But if they, you know, there were some incidents late in the playoffs where suppose, I don't know, something happened with him and Monty Williams. Uh, I don't know the details, so I don't want to get into it. But other than to say, maybe they're just not willing to make that kind of investment. But I think someone will. So if if kind of parsing that, your your sense right now is he is moderately likely to be playing somewhere else next year. Um, <laughs> no, I like you know we I I deal in the in the realm of percentages. You know, it's like right. Jalen Jalen Brunson will be in Dallas next year. So there's chance of anything, but DeAndre Ayton isn't quite he somewhere in between. So I'm just trying to you know calibrate right. calibrate your sort of your thoughts on on where they fall in in on that spectrum. Right. He's a tough one. It's kind of like <laughs> San Antonio. No, it is like yeah. last year. San Antonio and Demar Derozan were the hard ones. Uh, I I could project almost. I felt comfortable projecting almost anyone, but I didn't know or even have a clue where DeMar would land, how San Antonio would handle it, and Chicago was the answer. But I didn't, you know, I, I couldn't have, have guessed that, right? But in the case of DeAndre, <laughs> um, it, it's, it's similar in the sense that uh, I don't know what a Robert Sarver is going to do. If I go by the history of what he's paid out, then no, he's not going to go into the tax that deep. He's not going to invest that kind of money in a player that from my intel and from a lot of other people's intel, it doesn't seem like he's fully invested in DeAndre Ayton. And you could say, well, then maybe they sign him and trade him after a year uh, or at the trade deadline. All those things are possible. He can't be traded until uh, mid-January uh, if, if he does sign a big deal, but that's that's fine. The trade deadline's uh, you know a few weeks later, a month, under a month later. So he can be dealt. Uh, and it's disruptive, and it's better to lock in. Uh, if you ask any team, they would much rather have their full roster from day one to the, you know, you have a championship roster on day one, it's better than trading for one in season where you have to go through the roster adjustments and, and lose players and all the, you know, no training camps, so you have to learn on the fly. And it certainly worked with, you know, like Detroit getting Rasheed Wallace, the year they got Rasheed Wallace. So it's not like... Boston you know, it's, this it's, year, right. Golden State this year. I mean, it's not right. so, Clay coming back isn't the same thing. But I, right. I, 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 I understand where teams are coming from. I tend to think the fear of figuring it out later is, um, is probably a, something that the teams operate in too much fear of. Well, we'll have to figure it out later. Oh, yeah. Right. Well, you have to make the best decision in the moment, and so there, the moment for the for the Suns is not, not in June, technically, <laughs> uh, because it's illegal to negotiate a yeah. sign-and-trade, uh, which the uh, no Chicago Bulls... That. Yeah, but they're, they're going to pre-negotiate. But yeah. uh, let's, let's say in, a, in, a, in an honest world, uh, as of July, whatever, they're going to know at that point um, who's offering what, who's offering what in trade, via sign-and-trade, and at some point, they're either going to give him the money he's asking for or they're going to see an offer sheet. I would not be shocked if it goes to offer sheet. Like if you were to – if I were to handicap, I would say that sheesh, that they sign and trade him, number one. 
Number two would be offer sheet. Number three is they pay them outright in, in likelihood. Right? Wow. Does that makes sense? Yeah, it does. Who is the last, like, big time name that got an actual offer sheet? Both because uh, well, of Zach. The... Sorry? Maybe Zach Levine? I'm trying to think. You mean who got an offer sheet and was kept or an offer sheet in general? It seems like, I mean, it seems like offer sheets like that, that are, you know, big offer sheets are how largely because of the velocity of free agency teams don't want their, right. Their money right. tied up for several days like that. Um, right. Yeah, I, I think a team like the Pistons, not, not to say that they're the answer, although they could be for Aiton, a team like the Pistons that might have, the ability to lose out on an offer sheet and to be patient because they're the only team with money left is, is maybe a place where you could get something like that done. Sure. Uh, San Antonio, similarly, like if San Antonio decides, cause there's, there's only three to four to five teams with cap room this summer, right? Like I project the Blazers stay over. They might go under, but I project they stay over. I actually project the Pacers stay over though. They're, that's more of an iffy thing. They certainly can go under, uh, but the magic will have money, uh, but they're unlikely to need a center because they already have uh, Wendell Carter Jr. They have access to keeping Mobamba and they have the number one pick. So if they want Chet or if they want Jabari, they have a, a big coming. Plus they have Jonathan Isaac. Oh, that, that's a whole nother can of worms, right. but, um, but the Spurs have a lot of money. Uh, the Pacers have some, if they need it, uh, and uh, in Detroit, right? And so I'm probably leaving one out. Uh, but basically, there's it's one of the tightest markets we've had in a really long time. So there's not a lot of opportunity. So while you're absolutely right, like most free agency is done by like, if not July 1st, um, by July 2nd or 3rd, like it's it's all but done uh, for the for the key key free agents. So tying up your money in an offer sheet, and then you get ma- it gets matched and you get nothing. And then you look in the list of, of remaining free agents is bare, then you're kind of screwed. And so you're right. And, and I, I don't know if they're going to try to fix it in any way in a new CBA negotiation. Uh, but restricted free agency has been really, um, it's been a challenge. It's hard for agents to get an offer sheet these days on, on a high level player. You might be able to get one on a, maybe a, you know, a, a, a budget player, but it, it's a challenge. So yeah. Uh, but I think in this particular market with so few, uh, with so few teams with cap room and also so few free agents worth going after. I think maybe it's more likely, but I, you know, if I'm the Suns, I only let it go to an offer sheet. If I intend to match, I, I would work a sign and trade before he signs an offer sheet so that you're getting something back. Sure. So, I mean, it, it is, it, it's funny just how, it's a perfect example of how fast the playoffs can turn because they're rolling along and yeah, like, you know, things are going to go on. They're going to make the finals again. They're going to give him a, you know, it's pretty easy just to like, okay, max agree on the bells and whistles is sort of the negotiation. And then, then we're done. Uh, and then all of a sudden things change and now everything about their cha- team's outlook in the future changes on a dime. Um, side of that is probably Dallas. Wouldn't you say in terms of, of, you know, man, this is a team that, that is, that, you know, they got Luca, but they're kind of, they're kind of stuck other than that. And then they make the conference finals and it feels like just sort of the discussion around their roster building has almost done a 180. What are you, what are you hearing about what Dallas is? I mean, the Brunson one is the big one and, and it seems right. all indications are they're going to throw a bag at him and that's that. Um, but other than that, like what is, they were they were originally kind of one of the Gobert possible destinations. I'm I'm if I'm reading correctly, that's kind of cooled a little bit. But what else is what's on on tap for the maps? Right. Well, it kind of goes to our discussion from a second ago, where we're talking about how Aiton and, and Gobert and, and binary centers may not work entirely well in the playoffs. And Gobert, the challenge there uh, is that he makes a ton of money. Uh, he is a very expensive center. Uh, I think Utah has been very, I don't know, generous in, in what they've been putting out in money and maybe uh, unnecessarily so to an extent. I think they paid Gobert uh, more than, than was needed. 
but regardless, he would have been expensive anyway. And so to get someone like Gobert, it, it does change how you play. And then the question is, um, is, is that really the right answer? I, I wrote on Dallas for, uh, for Bleacher Report, and if you look at, at what they're spending, they're probably not going to have a lot of flexibility to add, but they do have some pieces. They have some trade assets, maybe not outrageous ones, but they have enough to sort of make some sort of moves. I don't, I don't think you need another star with Luka Doncic. Uh, I, I think really that, that was kind of the heart of the article as much as you know, people get, they fall in love with names, right? And like you can fall in love with Kyle Lowry for what he did as a Raptor winning a championship, but he was getting close to last legs at that point let alone now where we saw in Miami that while he, he helped them get as far as they did, there, there were times where he was either flat out not available and not playing because of injury or maybe not the same guy he used to be. And so a lot of times when you're going after a star, you're going after a name. And the reason they're available might be because they're, you know, they're not the same star anymore. Uh, and Luke is going to dominate that ball. And I don't, I don't know if you want to reduce that. And if you do keep Brunson, uh, really, to me, Detroit is just the team that Brunson's agent needs to set the market to make sure that Dallas pays enough. But let's say he gets $20 million in that range. And you bring back uh, Tim Hardaway Jr., who was hurt through the playoffs. You're adding another shooter. He's not an elite shooter, but a good enough shooter to spread the floor a bit. Uh, he does have a bit of a mid-range kind of game. And you know, I, I haven't looked at the numbers defensively. I'll say at least he's not a negative. Uh, at least by the eye test. I don't know if that's accurate. I I'm, I'm I, 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 w- I would challenge, but yeah, I don't. I, I think he's been uh, he's probably been better in recent seasons. Early in his career, he was a tire fire defensively. Sure, he's probably sure. he's probably. But I think that he would, amongst the players, like he would be a definite downgrade from what they were getting up for in terms of wing defense in the postseason this year. Sure, but you're adding depth. So yes, yes if you have Bullock. Uh, and, and Dorian Finney-Smith, they're the better defenders. But to be able to put in a player who's maybe a little more offensively proficient, who is a downgrade at times, but you now have more depth, and so those other players get to play maybe the kind of minutes that gives them better longevity. But, you know, there, there's an aspect that I think he helps. But if, if they assume, because they seemed, I remember when he was a free agent, I had reached around and said, hey, what's where are they on? Tim Hardaway Jr. and I had heard right off the gate like they were keeping him. That wasn't even a question. So if they still are high on him, which may have changed, uh, a year is a long time, and, and <laughs> we're talking about how things change within a week or so in the playoffs. So obviously, that's stale info to say that they're on that same level with him. But if they do, you have those three wings. You have Brunson and, and Doncic uh, as your main point guards, uh, and. Then you have um, Maxi as one of your rotation bigs. And I'm probably leaving out a piece, but uh, I think really they need to replace Dwight Powell. But then, you know, what do you need there? I mean, you kind of need more of what Maxi does, uh, but probably more of what Maxi does, but better. Uh, you know, if you can get a better defender who can hit the three, I mean, you can argue it's Miles Turner, um, but you can also argue that Miles Turner has relatively slow feet um, and is a very good shot blocker. And he does have a three ball, but he's also hurt a lot too. So um, I could see them going in that kind of direction, uh, trying to get a better center than Powell. I think um, Rick Carlisle, of course, is in, in Indiana and Coach Powell. So there's kind of that institutional love that coaches might have for the players they believe in. So I could see there being some sort of logic there that doesn't mean those teams want to do that. I'm just looking at the tea leaves and saying I could see with the need for an improved center defensively who can also shoot a bit uh, and the, the Indiana connection, I could see why that could make some sense. Sure. No, I, I, it's like it, whenever that, that player type comes up, it's like, oh, they're just looking for prime Serge Ibaka is basically what every team is always <laughs> looking for. And, and said player doesn't really aim to – exist around the league right now. <laughs> um, are they, I mean, are they like are, uh, one of the players that, that comes up a lot, it seems like, and, and it's a player and uh, you and I have kind of disagreed about, you know, where he fits in kind of overall, but a player who is 
among the better players likely available this summer is Jeremy Grant. Is Dallas or or where or where which playoff teams you think are more most kind of right? So you know, if you're signing Jeremy Grant, uh, it, or rather trading for him, it's like you're signing him uh, because if you're well, if you're giving up real value, the kind of value that Detroit would covet, then you're also planning on keeping him. You're not just going to trade away at first or young play, whatever it is that they want. You're and. All, all signs report, you know, it seemed like he wants the, the max that he can get, which is 120% raise. Uh, it's over $100 million in the $131 million range, maybe. I mean, it depends on if you do an extended trade or if you wait six months. You know, there, there are different ways to do it to get him more money. Uh, maybe, a, maybe a team isn't willing to make the trade unless he agrees to the extension right there, and then it's limited to only two additional years as opposed to four additional years. So, you know, there are... Uh, you know, minutia that needs to be worked out by the teams that uh, needs to make sense, sense for, for Grant as well as, you know, the, the Pistons. To me, you know, I have mixed feelings because on one hand, everybody in the league wants a defender who can score and shoot like a three and D guy, but Grant can also get you buckets in a you know diff- variety of ways. But with that, you know, he's made comments, uh, and talking to, to different teams, there, there's a little bit of a, I don't want to say a red flag, but like a yellow flag on a player who really wants to be that primary scorer on a team and, and is more focused on their individual numbers than just team success. I mean, a guy who left the Nuggets, who were you know, championship contender, arguably, to go play for the Pistons in a rebuild to get his money, um, I think that's... I think that's concerning to some teams. So some teams aren't going to be interested. And it's going to matter what Jeremy Grant wants if they reach out to him. And, and if he doesn't want to be a third wheel, like he would have been in, in, uh, in Denver, maybe even the fourth wheel, depending on Porter Jr. Uh, like if he went to Dallas, is he happy being the second scorer to, or the third scorer to Luka and, um, and Brunson? And he's definitely a fit as far as like adding in wing defense. I mean, if they just double down and say, "All right, uh, we're just going to go away from the center model entirely," you know, we'll, we'll move Powell, but we'll start start Maxi maybe or whatever it is you need to do, uh, and, and play Grant or even play Grant at center at six nine or however tall he is. Uh, maybe there's a a logic there if they're going to embrace going in the other direction. To me, I personally prefer flexibility so that you can go big and go small uh, and that you could be the team that dictates when you do so, as opposed to like the jazz are basically, they're going to play big. And if they're not going to play big, there's kind of a, a chasm behind Gobert. Uh, in, in Dallas, maybe they go entirely with a wing and, and, you know, the challenge is finding enough draft compensation and, uh, and again, if you're trading for Jeremy Grant, you're locking in that money. He's about 28. I think he just turned 28. So he's not old, um, but he's kind of is what he is. He's a talented player. And I think more teams are high on him, Seth, than maybe you are. <laughs> um, but um, you just need one, right? And I think there's probably out of 30 teams, 29 teams that could pursue him, uh, I'd say maybe half aren't even on the radar. You start narrowing it down to the teams that are willing to pay him that extension, that have the means to get him in a clean trade, and then that have the assets to give Detroit what he want, what they want. I think that dwindles down to two or three teams pretty quickly. You just Detroit only needs one to really cough up what they're asking for, and then you got a deal. Sure. No, it's it just the the it's almost like uh, Jeremy Grant's like the Denver style of Jeremy Grant. Might actually be worth worth the money to a, a contender that, but it doesn't. But as you're saying, it doesn't seem like he wants to. He wants to do that role, even though that's the kind of the only role he's probably equipped for on a contention level team. Yeah, and and I think Aaron Gordon to an extent has sort of yeah. accepted and embraced that role, and and they you almost have. Seems like the Nuggets had to push him a little bit to become more of a scorer just by injuries, like to take on a bigger role in the offense. And I, I think that's what teams want. Uh, there are teams who are like, yeah, please give us scoring. You know, we're, we're just desperate for scoring and would love to have 
you know, a guy who just wants to get his points. But usually by the time you're talking contenders, which are probably the kind of teams that go after a Jeremy Grant given his age, uh, they're probably established and probably need a, a guy to fit in more. Uh, but, you know, like I said, it just takes one. I don't know if it's Dallas. Uh, I, I don't think they go after a Gobert. I think, I think a Turner makes sense a little bit more than Grant if they want to go with the archetype of a, at least a, a tall body that can play center uh, in a more traditional sense, but can also spread the floor. If they want to go one step down in, as far as size, then I think Grant makes a lot of sense. So you, you, we've, touch, we, we've kind of tag, touched around Utah a fair amount. That seems like, uh, again, a, a team that, um, you know, kind of had, had their struggles well-documented uh, kind of internally down the stretch this season and then um, lost what should have been a, a fairly straightforward series against Dallas with, with, if you don't have to play against Luka for the first couple of games, and he's hobbled for a couple more, like you should win that series. But obviously they didn't, and and it wasn't even particular. I didn't think. Um, so things are going to change in Utah. I think everyone's expecting at this point. Um, what what are where are you thinking they're going to go? Mm-hmm. It seems like again that this is what I've sort of surmised, and you can tell me if you've heard different. Is that Mitchell's there for the for the short term? And the question is, is sort of Gobert and everybody else to and including Quinn Snyder. Right. Like what, like who else, who else is back for, for Utah? <laughs> do you think next year? Right. Well, they, they brought in Danny Ainge to run the organization at the top and Danny's never seemingly a guy who's a status quo, not good enough kind of guy. Like he's more likely to make bigger changes than to just say, okay, we're Utah. We just need to make the playoffs and our fan base is happy. And that's enough. Uh, Maybe in his age and and his position, maybe he's changed and and maybe Utah just needs to make the first round. And if they get to second, that's a bonus. Uh, But I I don't believe that to be true, but that's certainly possible. Uh, Everyone there uh, outside of Snyder uh, is really under long-term deal like Donovan and, and Gobert. So Utah doesn't have to make a change. But there's clearly some dissonance there between the two of them uh, that, you know, they could, if they're trying to deny, it's palpable, <laughs> it's very visible. You know what I mean? It, it has uh, been for three years. Right. Uh, and unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your point of view, like Utah went, they went for it. Like they basically said, this is our window. We're going to give up all the picks that we can. We're going to fill in with these veterans who we believe can get us there. And it didn't, uh, you know, for them, unfortunately, right? So now you're at a point where you've traded away your picks. Uh, so your, your, your books are very clou- clouded as far as flexibility when it comes to, uh, let's say you could trade a player, and if you had a first, you could bring back somebody who could help fix what's broken, they don't have those kind of firsts uh, readily available. Doesn't mean they can't figure out a way to do so. They don't really have any young players. I mean, Jared Butler. Um, they traded for Alexander Walker, who uh, didn't do much there, and and I don't know how much of a, uh, a value you get in a prospect who's about to hit restricted free agency. It, it's a little different if you get a guy like Precious Achua, uh, which is Toronto got um, in the Lowry deal because Precious has some time left on his deal. So you have some time to figure out you know, how, good is, how good he is, how does he fit, can, can he be a top five or seven rotation player, whereas Alexander Walker is probably not there yet, but is closer to a contract. So they don't really – their young guy, is other than, other than that, is maybe Royce O'Neal, who's like 28-ish. So I don't know the exact age, but in that range. So, you know – You've got Jordan Clarkson near the end of his contract. Uh, you got Bogdanovich, who's a good shooter, but in his 30s. You had Ingles, who um, you know was really important to how they played as far as defensively. Obviously, he got hurt uh, and is in Portland now. Uh, so I, I just feel like they've – personally, I feel like they've hit a wall. That That's me. Uh, if it were up to me and I was in charge, like if this was in – if if we were at sports business classroom and we were uh, coaching our Utah Jazz student led team, we'd be thinking like you know l- look at dumping everybody, 
taking a few swings in the lottery because you have heavy protections on the pick you owe to the Thunder, play the lottery for two, three years, let Danny Ainge have a crack at those picks, see what he can do with them, whether it's find players or use those picks as you know, trade bait uh, down the road. You know, there's a lot of opportunities. So I personally think Mitchell is not there for the long haul. Uh, I think Gobert is probably the guy they trade and keep Mitchell because he is more marketable. They do have the All-Star game in Utah next year. Buzz is, is that they want to have Donovan sort of be the face of that uh, as opposed to the unknown. You know, teams are afraid of the unknown. Uh, can they get a, 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 a reasonable face to run this, you know, to be the star of this organization for Mitchell and Gobert if they're tanking? Probably not if they decide to really blow it up. So I think they're probably going to look and see what the market is for Gobert. Uh, I can't imagine them keeping it together, but you know, it's at the same time, you know, it's they've kept it together this far. Like you said, it's been going on a few years. Well, and inertia sort of works against any one deal getting done anyway. So it's like as much as they might, they might want to, you know, strip it down to the studs. Like you kind of have to have the counterparties to do that. And like, you know, go it's, it's plausible that like Gobert is just not movable because of his, because of the mechanics of it. Sure. Um, I, I think they would find it. I think there's a deal out there to be had for Gobert, yeah. but sure. it's not an easy one because of that money for sure. Yeah. So let's, um, I, are there any other like, like teams that like their playoff experience really changed how they felt about their roster or players on their roster that you think we should, we should hit on before we move on to, you know, to your hometown. Uh, let's see here. I mean, it was, you know, it was a, it was a good thing to see the, the, the Timberwolves actually in the playoffs. So just, just being there was, was good enough. Um, as far as, um, I mean, you know, again, similarly, I think the Grizzlies realized it, it wasn't something new, but it's like, okay, you know, we're, we're more than just jaw and we can do this at a high level, uh, with jaw, we could do it without jaw, uh, Boston, same kind of thing, much better than expected. I'm trying to, you know, Philadelphia seems stubborn enough to stick with what they have um, with Doc Rivers, with, <laughs> you know, everything that's going on. So I don't know if they're going to learn from any situation right now, um, right or wrong. Uh, I, I think that's the heart of it. Um, yeah, I think we've hit on the on the bulk of the teams. I, I think the Suns were a good starting point because um, it was just a given they were going to go to the finals or at least at worst they would fall to Golden in State tough series. in the conference yeah, finals. in a tough series. Right. And, right. like, okay, we've been the two best teams all year, and two teams enter, one team leaves, and, and exactly. kind of go from there. Yeah. Uh, instead of, you know, what really is a, a collapse, frankly, against Dallas. Um, For sure. Let's talk – so, um, you know, the, 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 place where, uh, the, the place where I'm sure the bulk of your clicks come, uh, the Lakers. Um, <laughs> what uh, – other than the coach, what's what what's the latest from Lakerland? Well, um, I just wrote on them last night. I don't think it's published yet. I mean, it, we've talked offline a, a little bit about the Lakers, and I wrote an article that's tagged to my Twitter profile at, at Eric Pincus, E-R-I-C-P-I-N-C-U-S. And I kind of dissect what's gone down for the last handful of years? Like, how did they go from a championship team to what they are now? I mean, I, it's, I'm not much of a hater. I'm not a, um, the kind of person who goes on a radio show and just yells uh, about a point of view. It's more uh, diligent in looking at the transactions they've made and looking at how almost every transaction is a net negative. Like, uh, an example would be trading Danny Green and a first-round pick to get uh, Dennis Schroeder and then letting Dennis Schroeder walk or trading a second to get Marcus all and then trading a second to get rid of Marcus all. And you also got rid of JaVale McGee in the process, who was a vital role player for the Suns, whereas Marcus all is not in the league. So there, there are numerous examples like that. And so when you're a team that is heavily invested uh, in, in, two star players, let alone three. Uh, if we're going to call Westbrook a star or not, he certainly paid like one. Uh, mining the margins is, is how you succeed. That's how you <laughs> exist. You know, you, you can't win with three players. You have no money at that point. You have minimal resources. So 
uh, it becomes vital to really manage those resources carefully. And, uh, you know, I've talked long and hard about the Lakers needing to operate like a small market team in the sense of teams that can't get free agents uh, because they're not a free agent draw find other ways to do it. Well, once you're over the cap or in the tax like the Lakers are, you're essentially in the same boat as these free, uh, you know, these small markets. You might get better minimum guys because they want to play in L.A. because of the beach, uh, because of Hollywood, because of a chance, et cetera, et cetera. Although if I can break in there, you, you, I mean, we talked earlier about like, you know, going for a star is going for a name. Um, I think that like, if we look at how sort of a lot of what the Lakers have done recently, I think that there's been, you know, the fact bias. Yeah. And like, how, how much did it take to get, you know what? Alex Drews was good. He should play more. Austin Reeves is good. He should play more. Like uh, Alex Caruso is, is good. Still be on the team is oops, um, <laughs> you know. So it does it does seem like like they 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 have even though they can get, you know, players with higher profile because of L.A. That almost seems like a double edged sword, right? It's, well, it gives it gives them bad <laughs> options to choose, right? I mean, it, it, Trevor Ariza is an example, right? Like Wayne Ellington, Wayne Ellington has been a very good shooter over the course of his career but he hasn't necessarily been a great two-way player over the course of his career. And he's older now, right? Um, you start going down the list and you know, the, the issues uh, are compounded by not necessarily the financial difficulty or luxury tax or whatever, but more that they looked at Alex Caruso and said, yeah, now nah, we don't need him." You know? <laughs> like to me, that's more pro- problematic than um, another team paid, $20 million or like they, Alice Crusoe is under very economical contract with the Chicago Bulls. It's not outrageous. He's not even paid as a starter. He's basically paid give or take as a sixth or seventh man, uh, more or less. You know, we could argue that or debate that, but he's in that range. He's certainly not paid 18 million a year or 25 million or, or you know, 30 something million. And uh, they went after none and they could have just kept Caruso and not spent that money on none or, they could have done both. And my, my main concern when I looked at how they put the roster together, I thought that with health that they could just out-talent most of the West. Uh, certain, you know, they, they would sh- not the Suns, probably not the Warriors uh, at full strength, but they could be in the top five, I thought, uh, if healthy. Uh, but the challenge was when you look at the roster with that kind of lack of depth, there's nowhere to go when there's an injury and they had a lot of injuries and you have a team that has players like Anthony Davis who tend to have a lot of injuries. So if you want to help LeBron James, do you need a name or do you need depth? And to me, they went, Oh yeah, we need names. And the answer was actually, no, we need, we need depth if you're the Lakers. And so that's really the main concern because the same people who made those decisions, who kind of pared down their assets down to the nub are the same people who have to make the decisions to get them out of this mess that they created. So where's the confidence that they'll do that because same player evaluators, et cetera. I I, I trust their scouting. I've, I've found, I think they've drafted well. They found guys like Caruso and Reeves and the people on top just trade all those people away or let them walk. So what, what good does it do to draft well or to find diamonds in the rough if the front office is just going to dump them? Sure. We'll uh, let, let, we'll get back to that, but uh, but uh, frequent frequent guest uh, Yu Yang has a has a question. So if you want to unmute yourself and, and ask for, uh, uh, for myself, hi Steph, uh, thanks for uh, always uh, letting me on the show every single time. I so appreciate it. Um, hi, uh, I, I got a question for Eric actually. Um, Eric, uh, you've done an amazing job uh, on this podcast and also in your writings, kind of describing kind of the, the roster you know uh, maneuvers the Lakers have made the last year specifically or even the last two years where they got to the stage where, you know, they have like a flawed roster. You know, I think that's everything you said is totally true. But I just wonder um, if, you, if, you, if you talked about this or just what your take is on just LeBron James specifically. Um, and this is kind of my question. Uh, you know, LeBron James, you know, he still looked at as like a top 10 or a top eight or, you know, I don't want to get into the rankings because they're kind of silly, you know, but like, right. a, like an elite player, right? But I wonder though if like, if he really is that kind of elite player anymore, because, you know, I know plus minuses are really are flawed too. Like there's no perfect stat. Right. 
But I, I think if, if I'm if I don't know if I'm, if I'm correct or not, but I think like this is a, only the second time in his career that he had like a negative plus minus, and the first time since his rookie year, right? Right. So like all this talk about like building around Le- LeBron James, I guess is that even possible anymore? Like, can we still <laughs> even like you know build around him? You know, <laughs> sure. even if you have this perfect roster, like how good can the Lakers be with LeBron as the leading you know leading guy? Yeah, no, I so, mean with the perfect roster, yeah. Come on. <laughs> what do you think, Seth? I know. I just, I just want to interject that for the that the official uh, th- this podcast does not use uh, rankings. We use tier. Question to reframe. Yeah, okay. The, the, the question is: Yes, Ron a tier one player anymore? And uh, mm. man, that's one I'm going forth over for uh, pre pre an article <laughs> or a series of articles this summer on the Athletic. Is LeBron still a tier one player? I am. I am. I. I am. I am struggling with it. Um, right. So that's, right. a, that's a very good question. So yeah, I, I think defensively, no, he is not a tier one player defensively at all. Uh, there was a time where um, he, he, you know, throughout his career, where uh, he was a problem for other teams on both sides of the floor. I think now he's a player who might miss twenty games a year uh, in that range, and is still a very powerful offensive player. Mm-hmm. Plus minus to me is a team stat, so. If you're on a bad team, you know you could say, "Well, they do worse with LeBron." I I, I do more of a plus minus uh, of groupings of players, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, things like that. Uh, I don't know if there's a stat. If we're going, you know, I mean, Seth is more. That's more his area to to point out where numbers show the the problems of LeBron. Uh, to me, like if if you had uh, an elite team of shooters and athletes and defenders, yeah, LeBron could be the 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 driver like a Luca is still mm. right. Like Luca doesn't really defend that well at all. And uh, you run the offense through him. And I think LeBron could still be that uh, on a, on a, on a theoretical contender. Obviously you would need a better roster than what Dallas has uh, to do so. Uh, but uh, I think fundamentally the Lakers, regardless of your question, mm. the Lakers, I don't believe are willing to move out of LeBron James. But at the same time, he's in the last year of his contract and they need an answer by August 4th. That's when you can extend. And from all Intel, they may not know in June and they may not know in July what he's going to do. Mm -hmm. And they have to make moves that impact their future, but they may be somewhat paralyzed by that uncertainty. So if you're giving away future first round picks to get out of Westbrook and to get better pieces. If that's possible, uh, I certainly believe it is. Uh, but let's say uh, they trade away those long future first that are 2027, 2029 picks that are mm-hmm. after Anthony Davis is gone. After LeBron is gone, they are speculative picks. They may be great. They may be nothing, but it's a risk for the Lakers. Right. And then LeBron leaves after a year. Now, what was the point of that? Uh, or if you stretch out Westbrook's contract, you waive him. Let's say he, he'll he take a buyout for five, ten million dollars, three million, whatever. And you stretch that money, say, at 12 to 15 million dollars over the next two seasons. If LeBron stays for the next two seasons as well, well, three seasons total, that's not really impactful. I mean, it doesn't help, but it, you're actually you're basically deferring your tax from this year to the next two years at a lower number. And it gives the Lakers more flexibility immediately. Now, I'm not saying that they should do it. I'm saying it's a better move than a bad trade. Uh, you could argue it's a better move than keeping Westbrook, but that's debatable. It just seems to me that the Lakers themselves are somewhat paralyzed by that uncertainty. And they're going to operate like LeBron is going to be here for at least two, if not three seasons. But they may not be fully invested in making the kind of moves that are necessary to give him that contender on the fear or the possibility that he leaves. And so after one year, so um, every move, every inaction there, they're all risks. You take a move, you you take a risk every time you do anything, you take a risk anytime you, you don't do anything. So I don't know where, you know, as we kind of started with a little bit earlier, I'm not entirely trusting their decision-making process because I don't like the list of decisions that I've seen on yep. paper that I wrote that were just facts. I just went through transaction logs. It's not like 
I pick yep. and chose to to make an argument. I just went through the the list of moves they made, and almost every trade is a deficit. And letting players go that have gone on to productive uh, play productive basketball somewhere else, uh, and to get players that they've let come and go, and there's no continuity on this roster, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know the answer as to what they do, but there's a lot mm. there. I'll, I'll add to that, by the way. It's not, it's not purely, it's not just hindsight. Well, that didn't work out. This didn't work out. It's like the deal, the things that haven't worked out have, wor- have worked out badly in the ways that, generally speaking, have worked out badly in the ways that people at the time said they would work out badly. So it's not like, it's, it, these are, you know, hey, at the, I don't like, like, you know, you mentioned the Danny Green in a first for Dennis Schroeder. I didn't like the move at the time because, you know, first right. of all, Danny, Danny Green is good. You don't give away first rounders and Dennis Schroeder is not good. And, right. and you know that you know it's like and it that's right. that's how it played out. So they they sure. basically like you know rejiggered their team and got worse at the cost of a first round pick, which was like right. And, and, and I agree entirely. Uh, I've been writing on the Lakers out of L.A. Uh, that's really where I got my start uh, in, in this um, in this industry, and I've been doing it for you know since Kobe was playing. So it, it's been a while, uh, and. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I uh, you know, a simple example was I, I was writing and tweeting that from my intel, it doesn't sound like the Lakers value Alex Caruso. And I had that not the day he left to go to Chicago, but I had that a matter of weeks or whatever ahead of time. So, you know, to Seth's point, it, it, it's not a hindsight thing where I'm saying they screwed up. You know, like if you take a, a swing at something and it doesn't work out, at least you took a swing. Right. Like if it's a good move on paper and it was a good move as far as you're you're managing your money, managing your picks. And, you know, at the same time, you could look at result. They did win. They did win a championship. So does that give them some sort of plot armor ring protection where you say, okay, well, they're good because they won. So, you know, it's one of those things where I'm looking at the whole picture over the tenure and where they are now. I think they overcorrected from. Like, look at Miami after they w- went to the finals. Miami had a bad year the next year because in NBA sport or just in sports in general, it was the f- quickest turnaround to a regular season from the finals. And so if you look at the track that Miami went, they were nothing the, the next season, relatively speaking. And the Lakers weren't the same. And more health and more time for Miami with, you know, some roster moves. They got Lowry, et cetera, but, you know, not – outrageous move still the, the primary core of Jimmy and and Bam and Hero etc cetera, etc cetera. uh they're they're almost in the NBA finals uh right, right if the Lakers take that same path and just move around the margins without overcorrecting they're probably closer to uh playing at this point than you know, the mess that they created right all right. Well, you know what? Uh, I, sh- I probably I should probably should go. I see David is waiting uh, to to ask a question as well. I don't want to take up all the airtime today. Uh, well, thanks, Seth and Eric, for your for your awesome answers. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah. yeah. No. So, uh, th- thanks for asking you. I don't want to. Uh, one more. I guess I'm, I'm guessing from uh, David's avatar that he takes question. We'll we'll take that and then we'll finish. But uh, I think Eric and I need would like to to talk a little bit about sports business classroom to finish up. But first, uh, David, you want to unmute yourself and uh, and 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 fire away. Uh, with accusing Eric of hating your favorite team. <laughs> Hi, guys. Um, so I was just wondering, I've seen various reports that the Lakers are, like, unwilling to trade for bad contracts, such as John Wall and Gordon Hayward. And then you also see reports that the Lakers are unwilling to attach a first-round pick to Westbrook. So I'm sort of wondering, what do they expect to get in a Westbrook deal? <laughs> uh what I would expect and the kind of not, not to toot my own horn or anything, but like I would approach it with a level of creativity uh, that I don't know that they're willing because, you know, again, it's not my skin in the game. If, if they make a mistake, uh, I write about it as opposed to them making the mistake. They got to live with it. So it is different, obviously for me as a independent writer and not a decision maker for the franchise. I get that. Uh, to me, if you are, committed to LeBron for three more seasons, then it doesn't matter what contracts you take through 2024, 2025. 
Like if that means taking bad contracts, I don't think there is a bad contract in the NBA that they should not take. Uh, you, that, 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 that extends beyond that, right? Uh, it, it, there are contracts that are longer. I'm talking about ones that end. So Malcolm Brogdon, Gordon Hayward, like John Wall is an expiring contract. John Wall doesn't have a bad contract. It's not a good contract, but um, it's, it, the more damaging contracts are the ones that extend multiple years. Hayward in particular is pretty ugly. You could argue Julius Randle has a really bad contract. Uh, but again, I think that goes on too long for our purposes. Uh, as far as giving up first-round picks, uh, I'm open to it if I'm running the team under the, w- with the right protections. As long as I've got lottery protection uh, or maybe top 10 or some version of, of protection to make sure that in 2027 that the Lakers aren't giving up a top, you know, a top four pick, then, yeah, I'm, I'm open to that in the right situation. But I, as we kind of covered earlier, I think there is a little bit of perilous or paralysis rather in, in not quite knowing what LeBron's going to do. Uh, I, I'd consider stretching Westbrook. If it were me, I would be telling people, yeah, we're, we're considering stretching Westbrook or keeping him so that teams look at, at, at a negotiation and say, uh, we want this, that, and the other thing, and like, yeah, no, we'll just stretch Westbrook. We're good. Thank you. And at least now you're not like, oh, you've got to move Westbrook. They're, the the vibe that they're putting out through the media, I, I think through channels, is that they're planning on keeping Westbrook, barring, you know, the right deal. And I think that's their their way of trying to gain leverage. But if they're actually negotiating and they're trying to move Westbrook in a deal, that leverage doesn't really hold. Oh, we'll just keep him fine then keep them. So I, I, I think there's, I don't know if there's an answer uh, because I don't think the Lakers know full well what options are going to be there. I know that the Thunder would would welcome Westbrook in their cap space. Uh, it, it's a little complicated and I wrote about it. I, I think they would, you know, they would need to be compensated to get Westbrook and they probably don't even keep him. They probably buy him out. But I think there's an opportunity there to generate a trade exception that could open the door to almost any anybody they want in trade and open up the door to sign-in trades, open up the door to, if you want to keep Malik Monk, the, the, the non-taxpayer mid-level exception, the biennial exception. There, there are ways for them to get to where they need to to be a very flexible uh, suitor in this market. I just don't think personally that, A, they're going to see those opportunities. I don't know if they're reading my articles <laughs> or B, I don't know if they're, um, they're willing to take those risks, especially with the uncertainty uh, on, on LeBron, that if he walks after a year, everything they do could be damaging immediately after this season. Let me, let me ask you a, like a, like a question ba- built on that because um, it seems like at one point the thought process there was, all right, we've got LeBron, we've got Anthony Davis. LeBron's where he is age-wise, but he's going to move on, and then we have Anthony Davis as sort of the cornerstone of the next Lakers team. It seems like that, that they're at the point where they should probably move on from that that notion and like, okay, our window is LeBron's like useful like like remaining basketball career. And if it's that way, then like your hangover three, like the hangover is already built in like three years from now. So like, as you're saying, kind of who cares is, is there still some lingering thought like, or have they just not like moved on from, okay, well we got to stay flexible so we can build the team around Anthony Davis. And we kind of, I think at this point you kind of have to say Anthony Davis isn't the guy both because of his own, like, I don't want to say shortcomings, but you know, the little things that he doesn't do well that keep him out of that top tier as well as his, his propensity for injuries. Right, right. Um, so I think a lot of what, what went into the team building aspect was preserving cap room in 2023. I, I don't want to say I think. It's more than I think. I can't say I know because nothing you – know, I don't work for the team and there's you no 100%. Suspect. You strongly Thank suspect. You. Yeah, <laughs> right. That cap room was preserved. So that's why – a Caruso or the getting a Westbrook made sense because he expired on time, but it's fundamentally flawed uh, unless you're planning on moving on from LeBron. And I never got the sense that that was the case and the kind of cap room that they would have if you whittle down the roster to just LeBron 
and just Anthony Davis. And assuming LeBron is getting paid max money, because I don't believe that LeBron is willing to take a discount. Maybe he is, but I'm not going to pencil that in. Uh, then, yeah, maybe you could get to $20 million, $25 million in cap room, uh, which is below the minimum needed to make an offer sheet on a DeAndre Ayton type. Not, this wouldn't be this year. It would be next year. But the, the, the idea of a, a, a rookie scale, uh, less, than, less than seven years of service player, they wouldn't have that middle tier max. They wouldn't have the top max. And then also, like, go through the history of the Lakers. How many top free agents have they landed in – their franchise's history, it's, it's really two. It's Shaq and LeBron. And they don't appear to be a team willing to really break things down to the bone. Uh, and, and you don't really have the means to do so. But you're basically saying the last year or two, you've diminished the product in preparation for what's next in 2023 without understanding that 2023 was never going to be a thing. And so you've got these contracts that all expire. They're all gone, basically, right? Like, they, as it is, they didn't time it right for 2023, let alone they, all their contracts are gone. They don't have anything, anything, anything on their books right now except for Westbrook. So making a smaller trade is, is very difficult. All they have is THT, Taylor Horton Tucker, at about $10 million, and uh, Kendrick Nunn at about $5 million, $6 million, in that range. So, you know, they don't have a lot of outgoing contracts. Like, that's basically it. They have a few minimum guys, and that's it. Everyone else is a free agent. So they don't have rooms for doubles. It's either like you know, they're the Dave Kingman. It's like either strikeout or home oh. run. Yeah, that's all old baseball reference. Sorry. That is, I did not expect, I did not expect to hear uh, the, you know, uh, Dave Kingman. What, what was the, what was the, I can't even remember now the name the, of the ballpark in Seattle, the, the terrible dome. That they played in the kingdom, Seattle Dome, like, kingdom, it, it, kingdom. It's king, it's the kingdom, is the kingdom. Yeah, that 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 awful like neon green field. Um, we're I'm thinking from the the Nets day, uh, the the Mets days, uh, the New York uh, Mets days, Dave King. Okay, that's, um, that's my that's my history. <laughs> so I think that's that's. I mean, you know, we could we could go chapter and verse, and I kind of wanted to talk. We're running a little on, low on time, and one thing we definitely wanted to get to is as I mentioned up front. Uh, both Eric and I um, are instructors again this summer at the Sports Business Classroom in Vegas. And a lot of what Eric was talking about there kind of leads in naturally to that because um, those are the kinds of things that we like that, you know, the, 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 that sort of working backwards from where you want to be in three years analysis is a lot of what uh, of what the, the, the curriculum is there. Um, you know, if I can if I can speak out of school a little bit here, Eric is, is good at this in part because he does have some insight in how uh, teams are thinking. Uh, we did a online version, like a, a, a mock trade deadline version uh, earlier this year, January or something like that. And I made fun of Eric. Students got the best of him in the trade um, where like Eric was was playing the role of uh, of, of New Orleans. And I thought he, you know, tr- he, he gave up way too much to get a okay veteran. And I was like, oh, that's a terrible trade. Um, and, and, and good, good student for doing this. And Eric's like, well, no, I think that's actually how New Orleans is going to operate. And then New Orleans, you know, backed up the truck for CJ McCollum, which, you know, in fairness to David Griffin did work out very well for them. But the point, like, I think Eric understood the value that New Orleans was, was, was placing on win now moves that didn't look like they had a lot of chance of succeeding. Um, but then they did. Um, so anyway, uh, long-winded intro. Uh, do you want to give your your kind of your your pitch for SBC and, and kind of uh, sure? You know, you've you've actually been involved in the program for a couple more years than I have. So yes, sir. Um, yeah. Well, uh, start and say that uh, it's July 10th through 15th is our immersive program in Las Vegas, uh, Nevada. It's actually at Summer League. You're in the building with executives with access to the corridors of the of the arena. Uh, and, and access to the gym and to you know watch games and, and and all of that. And if you are interested right after that, make sure you go to sportsbusinessclassroom.com. Uh, there's more info there and registration information, and it's July 10th through 15th. But as far as the actual um, the class itself, it, I, honestly, it's it's my favorite time of year. And I've been doing, like I said, I've been doing this a long time, a couple of decades, and uh, the opportunity to sort of mentor and help other people get where they want to go and you know, fulfill their dreams of, you know, working in sports, basketball specifically, 
it, it's something that I value. And one of the great things about our program, probably, I mean, I could, we could talk all day about what's great about it, but really we do help people get jobs. And ultimately that's why people sign up. Uh, so we have like former students who are like two GMs of G league teams, uh, came from our program. Uh, we have people with the nets. We have people with, uh, the nuggets, the clippers, and you just go down the list, uh, the Lakers, uh, it, it's it's international a great... media superstar Dave Dufour. <laughs> you know it, it's it's fascinating. Like uh, Simon uh, Sharon Gordon is like when you read NBA on Twitter, NBA at NBA. Like that's a former student. It, it's it's the sort of thing that is sort of like a feedback loop. I've been doing this. I think this is my sixth or seventh. I've lost track because of um, because the pandemic. Uh, but I've done this for long enough that. I've seen that our reputation has grown because we've had speakers come in and they speak and they get to know us. And then they see people, they see (laughs) my, my doorbell's going off. Uh, uh, You see students go on to success and, and executives see the product that these students are putting out in different ways. And now they're like, okay, I want to hire that student or at least I want to hire a student out of that program. And so it's, it's grown in a sense that when a team sees sports business classroom on the resume, they're more likely to, you know, give them a look, you know, maybe put them at the top of the resume pile and it's working. So um, it's a great program, but, and we can get into more of the details of what we do, but really uh, the joy of it is that they actually get people jobs. No, I think I think that's right. I've, this is this will be my my uh, my third year teaching at the program, and it's been it's been as as Eric said, like you know, helping people. Uh, you know, uh, some some people some people are, are as, as as Eric gets attached. That's my by dog. His dog. <laughs> uh, the, I think the dog likes when you go to SBC too, because then yeah, I don't know. Um, uh, no, but. Uh, both the, the the program is, I think, a lot of fun in its own right. In that it is very do some very in depth, uh, you know, analysis and sort of negotiation that are, um, you know, as close as you can get from a simulation standpoint to how these things actually go. But then, as Eric said, giving people sort of a taste of what the actual the actual life is, what the actual job is, and let them, you know, get in touch with people and 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 uh, you know pursue that dream. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we could talk about, yeah, it's great. And it does all these things as far as helping people get jobs. That's, that's the heart of it. But the actual program is just so much fun. And uh, we break our students into three majors. It's kind of like the concept of college where everyone takes general education classes, everyone's together and learning the basics in in almost every area. I mean, I work on, of course, salary cap, I work on uh, basketball operations, and then we have scouting video and analytics. We have media and broadcast. And you're sitting there and learning and you're interacting. It's not like I've been at things where there's like a panel and it's 1,500 people in an audience. And you're hearing how that person got into basketball, which is great. But what does that, what does that do for you? You know what I mean? Like what does that do for a student who wants to break into the league, sitting there listening to how – you know, like a, an assistant coach or a scout. I got, I got lucky this way. And then I met the right person and then da da da, which is right. That's sort of, that's, that's either I was related to somebody or I got lucky. So how do you get lucky? Yeah. And you can't teach. And how are you prepared? And how are you prepared to win that, when that luck, when that, uh, when that bit of luck hits. Right. And mostly what we're doing. Right. And we, I don't know the number. I know that last year we kept it a little smaller because of, of the pandemic. We had about 60 in that range. I don't know the number that they're going to cap it at, but ultimately they do cap the amount of participation because we don't want to have something unwieldy. We want to make sure that the students are getting value. And so uh, people are going to sign up for whatever they sign up for. Uh, If you're looking into going into broadcast or that sort of thing, we've got Bo Estes, we've got you and Dave DeFore and and some great people running scouting video analytics. Of course, Larry Kuhn is the godfather uh, of teaching the salary cap and together we work and do the, uh, the, the you know, salary cap major CBA. And, and then I focus 
you know, on just teaching about basketball operations and, you know, what, what is a front office and how is it comprised? And, you know, it's not a universal thing. You know, every team's kind of its own little fiefdom. And then how do they operate? You know, what, what's the pressures? Why is it so hard to make a deal? What, what are you, what are your obstructions are? Is the obstruction the other team or is the obstruction maybe the owner of the team who's in the way of doing what you want to do? You know, we talked about the Suns earlier and about DeAndre and a lot of that may be issues based on what the owner wants, maybe less so than what the basketball operations department wants. I, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, Ryan McDonough has been a valued part of sports business classroom and they're building, you know, their, their success is built around the players he brought in. <laughs> He's no longer there. So uh, I don't know. It's a, uh, you know, maybe uh, you should trust Ryan McDonough and, and pay the under eight. That's a different story. Uh, but we also break our students into teams where we kind of mix and match. So we make sure that each team gets someone from the salary cap major, probably a couple of people from scouting video analytics, uh, someone media broadcast, and you're assigned an NBA team. And from there, your job at that point is to do self-evaluation. Who are you as a team? Where are you going? What is it that you should be doing? Where should your resources go? Should they be going to re- rebuilding, to uh, you know, ch- championship contention? Are you trying to you know, advance the current core that you have and just get that final piece to be a, a top-tier playoff team, et cetera, et cetera? And then from that, you're going to start to negotiate with each other. And we actually have a mock trade deadline, which is just about as much fun as you said, like best simulation that you can find. And you're going to be judged on, A, how you – execute what your vision was, uh, what, how good your basketball decisions were, how good your presentation was uh, in, in delivering what you did to the entire group. Uh, and it's, a, it's just a, a, a really wonderful, fun, interactive learning process that I just, I've never experienced anywhere else. And I've been around a while and it's, it's part of why I love doing it. Uh, being a teacher, you know, the, the worst part about being a teacher is that I can't go to your scouting video and analytics deep dives. I mean, I would love to learn from what you guys do. I can't because I'm teaching, but you know, I would love to go through media and broadcast and be better at what I do, learn how to be better at what I do in media from experts that I trust. So uh, I, I wish I could, you know, clone myself and do, you know, be a student a couple of times over. Yeah, no, I think, I, I think you summarized a lot of what we do re- really well. And, and um uh, you know, kind of, I've kept you for over, over the hour. I've promised, so I would, uh, I would put a pin in this by saying, if anything that Eric uh, said or I said sounds interesting, go to sportsbusinessclassroom dot com or reach out to both Eric and myself. Have open DMs on Twitter, so drop us what we're happy to talk about it more. But uh, Eric, uh, thank you so much for for joining today. Really appreciate all the insight and uh, um, and and uh, you know hopefully have you back sometime as we get proper as, as kind of news continues to percolate. Absolutely. I'd love to do it. So thanks for having me on. I look forward to uh, working with you in July. Thanks a lot. And thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, I've got a very special and frankly terrifying episode tomorrow night. Um, uh, uh, NBA Twitter favorite, uh, Maya Nolan Partnow, my wife is joining (laughs) tomorrow night to, Talk about whatever we talk about, including I think being uh, a playoff widow, as she is, as she has uh, learned to become every year around this this part. So uh, join us then, and uh, or submit questions in advance, um, and uh, sure to uh, be a good time. Thanks a lot for listening, folks, and take care.